hopefully it has prepared us to talk about what we believe. So uh, if you have an outline, uh, if you were just singing, you probably have an outline. We're going to start at the top where it says main point. Um, Yeah, Yeah, it's it's a usual practice we have. So, um, truthfully, uh, I feel like I could could hear an hour lesson on each of these creeds and confessions, professions and affirmations, but we don't have that much time right now, so we'll, we'll try to cover it all in one lesson, and then hopefully the outline will cause you to look into these things more for yourself. Um, we, we know Westminster pretty well around here, but uh, the church has a rich history of professions and affirmations that led up to that. Um, so hopefully this... Hopefully this lesson gives us some exposure to those things and uh, an opportunity to know our, know our roots. Uh, up at the front here, we've got some resources. Feel free to check those out after the lesson. Starting from the left, that's Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. It's available in the church library. The Westminster Confession, um, with all the, it's got the confession, the larger and shorter catechism and something called the Directory for Public Worship. A thinner book, but with small letters, so it's not any shorter. (laughs) No, it is quite a bit shorter, called Well-Ordered, Living Well. And then uh, another copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. This came from the book table. It's available out there, and it has all the proof texts, and just you can flip to any page. Just The confession takes up this little top part right here, and all this down here is the proof text, so... If you're wondering, how can I trust this confession? Well, you can look at the proof texts. And you can understand the rationale for the, that the writers had when they wrote the confession. So our main point is uh, nothing groundbreaking. God uses professions, affirmations, creeds, and confessions <laughs> of his church to maintain the unity and purity of his church. Uh, one thing I've found while studying the many documents that are listed in the outline is that we have a lot in common with other believers. um, And we we should, uh, although we should hold fast to what we believe, we should also avoid um, divisive sectarianism that prioritizes our own own nuanced understanding over uh, church unity. That, that, That also means that we shouldn't go the whole other way and for the sake of unity, give up what we know to be true. So that's a that's a kind of a point of tension you'll see throughout uh, the lesson today. So now that we've talked about Westminster, um, I just got a question for the group: If we have Westminster and it's based on Scripture, and we have Scripture, why study further if we already have the truth? And it just makes me think of just that thing in Proverbs that says, uh, "The beginning of wisdom is." Knowledge of God. Um, so, knowledge of God is understanding. Uh, we gain understanding by studying His Word. Yeah, amen. Um, and many counselors. 
Yes. Um, I think uh, back to a conversation we were having before class started, this idea that we've mastered the basics. Um, I don't know that we ever outgrow the basics, the fundamentals. So that's why we study further. Um, to understand uh, where the church has been. Um, I don't believe that we should study you know, all of the errors necessarily uh, and memorize other people's errors. But it is helpful to know what errors were made and why uh, and what, what misunderstandings led to those errors. That way we can further refine and, and hone our uh, statement of faith and our, our confession and our understanding. Um, where do we see creeds other than the church? Just this idea of creeds that we that we spout out. Maybe we memorize them. Where do we see them? Pledge of allegiance. There we go. Pledge of allegiance. It's a pledge. Um, where else do we see them? Basically, church and state. Yeah. yeah. You have church creeds. You have state creeds. It's more or less how we do things. Yeah. It's true. Um, Creeds are, although they might seem, you know, uh, elementary, um, creeds are powerful. Um, many, many, many soldiers and service members from many, many militaries have sworn oaths and creeds and memorized the basic truths of, of who they are or who they're being told they are. And the church is no different. Um, what about statements of faith? Where do we see statements of faith? Maybe outside the church, where would we see that? Um, like, a, think of one you might have. Ku Klux Klan. True. Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. <laughs> yep. Uh, Scouts. Scouts Honor. Um, we we recently celebrated July Fourth. There was a, a declaration. Um, so, without without spending too much time on. Why creeds? Why statements of faith? Why do we have these documents that profess the truth? Um, I just want to... uh, I want us to see that it's not just the church. The world is doing it too. And the reason the church has these is partially because the world is doing it too. So for the church to know who the church is and for the church to be separate from the world, we have to know what we believe. And we have to know it well enough that we can summarize it and share it and remember it and hold fast to it, just like that song we were singing in difficult times. We can hold fast to what we know is true. So if uh, you turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, we'll talk about the origins of professions, affirmations, creeds, and confessions. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. If you don't have your Bible or a digital copy on your phone. It is printed there in the outline, and I'll read it for you. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is telling a young pastor to follow this pattern of sound words you've heard from me. Um, and this is, this is kind of the basic scriptural root for why we have creeds and why we, why we have collections of words we believe to be true. Um, I think a tendency could be to say, well, we've got scripture. We don't need 
creeds. Those, those aren't found in the Bible. We don't need those. Um, any thoughts on why it's helpful to summarize it in a creed, other than, other than the, the, maintaining the culture of the church and those aspects we talked about already? Why is it helpful? Why do we need a creed and not just, not just the Bible? Or why do we need a confession? Confessions are paraphrases, sometimes taken directly from scripture in snippets, but uh, it's it's an interpretation of the scripture that we that we hold fast to. Yeah. In our individual study, that's that's our goal is to know and understand what the word says. Sure. And being able to articulate it uh, you know when when you need to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true for a large percentage of Christians in this church, uh, usually their children. Um, how, how else will we teach our children a, a quick summary of what we believe wrong? I think another aspect of this is the reason we have our creeds, why we have the Westminster Confession, and, and again, is to condense to based on Scripture, but it's a quick reference to what it is we believe and other people can read and look at the church and say, what do we believe? Yes. Uh, well, that's why we put it up on the web pages. Yes. That nature. It, yeah. it gives a clear understanding of what we need. You know, obviously, the Bible is huge. Um, and that's, but if you look at those texts, and if you go into the Westminster Confession of Faith, like you've already shown, it will list multiple, multiple, uh, multiple of, uh, you know, the, the uh, scriptures mm-hmm. that support what it is that we're Yes. Go to to get after a certain subject matter that you might be. So it helps in study and it helps in yeah. understanding and let other people know what we believe. Amen. Yeah, it's the Westminster just as an example is organized topically, so it can take it can take verses about the Savior or baptism or um, sin. sin or love and put them all into one convenient spot. Um, our church fathers who have done this study and like I said before we sang even even died for some of these uh, the truth contained in these creeds um, they did us a great favor and they blessed us tremendously by consolidating and uh, providing us this tool the other thing, the other thing too goes along with that especially the Westminster Confession was systematically set forth in a pattern of from beginning to the end in a, in a follow through you know yeah Redemption of Christ, the end times come at the end. And again, it was systematically thought through. It wasn't just happenstance. They just, this is subject here, this is subject here. They thought through the flow of the subject matter right. and then laid it out according to the scriptures. It, 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 so it helps that way too. Yeah. Um, excellent. So uh, all this, all those answers are good and helpful and accurate. Um, and they all support this idea that Christians have this basic desire to openly state the truth. And I say openly because many organizations don't openly state what they believe. Um, 
you know, if you get invited to someone's church and they can't tell you quickly in a, in a, in a summarized way what they believe, they might be hiding something or maybe they don't know. Um, you know, con- contrast the idea of church members openly professing something as simple and short as the Apostles' Creed to cults where you don't really know what's going on until maybe you're already in that and you wouldn't have gone had you known. Or even uh, modern marketing practices. There's always, there's always what I'm showing you, don't look behind the curtain, something else is going on. Uh, it turns out the free subscription ends right after you got tired of using it. Uh, so uh, just to make the church set apart from other seemingly religious organizations or worldly organizations, we say what we believe right up front. We're not, we've got nothing to hide. Uh, historians have found dozens of early examples of summarized statements of faith. These statements often began with the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Yes, got some Latin scholars in the room. I'm not one of them. Um, early statements focused on mostly Christ and beliefs about Christ uh, because the early problems in uh, the church and in the faith were errors associated with Christ. Did he actually have a body? Did he really die? Did he really come back? So a lot of the early creeds uh, that have been found focus mostly on Christ and what he did um, and beliefs about Christ. As church history unfolded, these statements became longer and more complex because more problems arose that had to be dealt with and more disagreements about how to understand scripture arose. Um, Longer statements became known as confessions. They were more detailed. They were designed to contend with these problems that came up. Creeds remain shorter, general statements of faith that were written to emphasize truth, usually directly from Scripture, like Shannon was saying a minute ago. Creeds and confessions both provide an important means for the church to profess and affirm the faith handed down from the apostles. So uh, with that introduction laid out, let's, uh, let's look at some, some confessions from Scripture. Um, but before we do that... Um, it's not just Christians who state what they believe. If you've, ever, if you've ever heard the Islamic call to prayer, the first word is ushahid, eyewitness. So keep in mind that sometimes other religions know well what they believe, and we too must know well. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an older, I use that example because it's, a, it's an older religion, um, but uh, fear not, uh, we have a pretty old one here too in Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One of the earliest points in Scripture where we get a, a, an easily memorable, knowable statement about God that says how God is different from all the other gods. Moving into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15 Three through five. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. What does that sound like? It does, yeah. So just like you said a minute ago, creeds usually, usually they take their clauses from uh, from Scripture, sometimes directly. <clears throat> Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that sound like? It's kind of hidden in the middle there. Being found in human form. Sounds like a creed designed to be sung. Uh, it does. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not in English, but uh, yeah. The the keep in mind the very quickly within church history there arose these questions about Christ's body and well why why was why did he need to be a man? Uh, so a lot of the creeds focus on, and we'll see that in some examples, some historical examples later on in the lesson. Uh, then I think the Nicene Creed in particular focuses on this idea that he indeed was in human form. It wasn't some, he wasn't some spirit sort of hovering above and his feet never quite touched. Uh, so we have the truth plainly in Scripture, but people lose the truth and people overlook it or people maybe explain it away or interpret it wrongly or differently. So the creeds bring us back uh, by consolidating all these together uh, we can have more well-formed uh, statements of specific elements of theology. First Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here's some, uh, those are some scriptural examples. And all those build into these historical creeds that we've used in our church and many churches for, for as long as the church can remember. Um, moving on to the Apostles' Creed, um, a summary of the high points of New Testament teaching. Its elements are found in writings from early Christian authors um, and in the scriptures we just read together. Uh, this creed is used more in worship than any other creed. A lot of that is because of how short it is. It's... It's easy to memorize. It's easy to have printed in the bulletin. Uh, it contains a basic call to believe in the triune God. So once again, remember, we're defending, we're defending those crucial Christian truths that without these truths, the faith begins to unravel. Um, it doesn't make sense anymore. So the triune God. We have the Creator Father. And that's the first, the first stanza. The son Jesus, the second stanza, whose father is God and whose mother is Mary. We, ha- we can't leave out these important uh, details. And then the third stanza, the spirit that gathers the church to God. This, and then it ends by reminding us that he's coming back to save us and to judge us. Any questions about the Apostles' Creed or thoughts on that? There have been some controversies on the Apostles' Creed. Um, three days 
how do, we, how do the days count? Uh, descended into hell is a controversial phrase uh, that uh, the creed is, in, in, in what I researched, I couldn't find a specific origin uh, for the Apostles' Creed. It's just, it's just old. It's like some of these very old hymns that have been with us for thousands of years. Go ahead. The, the Apostles' Creed is probably in use by the end of the first century in the Ephesus area, the area that's now the far west end of Turkey, uh, and was probably initially used when people were baptized, so the baptismal confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons that this structure the way it is is it's a response to some of the false teaching that was common in that era, era and era, uh, especially Gnosticism. Uh, which did not think of God as creating the earth, did not imagine that God could become flesh. Right. So it's, it's probably very old. Uh, and probably has that intent from the beginning to respond to the Gnostic worldview. Right. <clears throat> so with the... Like, like I said in the beginning, the, the creeds start pretty short, but then more questions come up. Descended into hell. Wait, how was he God and man? Okay. How do, how do we know that? We need more detail. We need to contend with people who are questioning that, the validity of this claim. Uh, like you said before, um, not every Christian could read. Still true today. Uh, not every Christian had a handy codex formatted scripture that they could uh, flip through, and they didn't have control F. So... They had to read it, and they had to summarize it, and they had to memorize it, and they had to combine it together for others. This was their control F. We'll put it all in the creed. It's easily found. Uh, but some of, the, some of the questions about uh, the specifics led to longer creeds being developed. So now we'll take the Nicene Creed, formerly known also as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. The creed was developed during the Council of Nicaea, eighty-three twenty-five. So, as <clears throat> was stated a minute ago, the Apostles' Creed was well in use by this time, perhaps for hundreds of years. It was modified in eighty-three eighty-one to include language uh, about the Holy Spirit, and it was later finalized to include the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from not just the Father, but the Father and the Son. It was written in response to views that had diminished the divinity of Jesus Christ. So, how does the creed answer these views? That Jesus is not divine. It uses these really important words. He was begotten, not made. The only begotten son. Uh, Sometimes the word firstborn son in the New Testament leads people to have this false idea that Christ was born. And that, oh, well, I was also born, so I can be like him. Um, It's easy to fall into some metaphorical traps but the creed makes it clear defending that that assertion that Jesus was begotten not made the creed also emphasizes the unity and equality of the three persons of the trinity Um, we don't really study the trinity as much as we ought Um, I think even in in, uh, Christendom today we find people sort of seeing God as like the commander and Jesus as uh, like the doer and the Holy Spirit as this sort of extra one that sort of don't really know what he does. He? Can we call him a he? There, there, are, there are gray areas and questions in people's minds. So these creeds are designed to clarify those. Um, 
Moving on to the Athanasian Creed. This creed further clarifies Trinity and Christology. First, the creed emphasizes the unity, distinctness, and equality of the three divine persons. And then secondly, it emphasizes aspects of Jesus as both God and man. Uh, And since since we know the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed pretty well, uh, I wanted to share some parts of the Athanasian Creed with you, one we don't use as much. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in the Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So the creed goes on to do that on multiple issues, to say uh, true and equal things about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, attempting to correct some uh, misunderstandings that had risen. And it's not that long either. It's just about a page long. Uh, The Chalcedonian definition. So by now, more more than the creeds that we've talked about, these few, there were were many more. Um, But at the Council of Ephesus in AD 431, they said, no new creeds. We have enough. We have enough creeds. Um, kind of like that question we started with. We've got Westminster. Why study anything else? No new creeds. They forbade new creeds. The Council of Chalcedon met in, sorry, Chalcedon. It's a hard to see. Chalcedon met in 451 to confront new errors. So they didn't want to keep just creating more creeds, but they still wanted to correct errors. The council decreed to affirm the Nicene creeds of both 325 and 381 and to clarify teaching on the person of Christ. And they banned new creeds. The council defined Christ as one person with two natures, God and man. It defined Christ also by what he is not. But their work wasn't accepted by the entire church. Uh, There were different schisms and regional issues. The, The definition was not fully accepted. It's very short, so I'll read you the whole definition. Following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, 
but as one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. So even the Chalcedonian definition is hearkening back, not just to the Old Testament, not just to the New Testament, but to the creed that was handed down from the fathers. So we've got many creeds, we've got a definition, and we've got an agreement, no new creeds. Um, Well, you can imagine, well, let's write some confessions instead. Um, So the church continues studying and producing material, both creeds and confessions. Uh, the Augsburg Confession. So we're jumping, we're jumping about a thousand years forward in history here. The most significant confession of the early Reformation period, the Augsburg Confession built upon prior efforts and responded to contemporary political criticisms of Lutheranism. It was written in 1530, formally, adopt, formally adopted 50 years later. Reformation minds such as Luther and Melanchthon worked to continue the Protestant movement with this document evidenced by some sermon-like sections on free will and good works. Obviously, they were emphasizing issues that were pertinent to them at the time. Um, Luther was dissatisfied with the omission of some key points of disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church. So I think now we're exposing maybe some of the problems with creeds and confessions. We were, initially, we were trying to address disagreements about Scripture with statements of faith called creeds and confessions, but now we're having disagreements about our creeds and confessions. Um, so this sort of answers back to that question, why, why should we study them? Well, to continue to refine our belief. I'll go to Article 21. This is uh, something that was left in that, uh, remember, Luther was, Luther, Luther was dissatisfied that more, I guess, Answers to Roman Catholic problems weren't included, but this is one that stayed in there. Of the worship of this, this is Article 21 of the worship of the saints. Of the worship of the saints, they teach that the memory of saints may be set before us, that we may follow their faith and good works according to our calling, as the emperor may follow the example of David in making war to drive away the Turk from his country, for both are kings. But the scripture teaches not the invocation of saints or to ask for help of saints, since it sets before us the one Christ as the mediator, propitiation, high priest, and intercessor. He is to be prayed to, and, he, and, and has promised that he will hear our prayer, and, his, and this worship he approves above all, to wit, that in all afflictions he be called upon. 1 John two, chapter 2, verse 1, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, etc., And then they close out with a statement of the first portion of of the first 21 articles. This is about the sum of our doctrine as which can be seen. There's nothing that varies from the scriptures or from the church Catholic or from the church of Rome as known from its writers. This being the case, they judge harshly who insist that our teachers be regarded as heretics. There is, however, disagreement on certain abuses which have crept into the church uh, without rightful authority. And even in these, if there were some difference, there should be proper lenity on the part of bishops to bear with us by reason of the confession, which we now have reviewed. So um, that idea that we're trying to be specific about what we believe, but not so 
not specific to the point of excluding the universal church. They're wrestling with it here. Uh, in the Augsburg Confession, they didn't want to summarily dismiss all, all believers uh, in the Roman church as heretics. They wanted to be clear that some abuses and some, uh, some uh, problems have crept in, and we need to deal with those problems. How uh, much time we got left? Moving on. Belgic Confession. So same century, kind of a, almost a contemporary work of the Augsburg Confession, produced in 1561 by Guido de Bress, a former student of John Calvin. De Bress paid with his life for this written attempt to show the Spanish king that the Protestants should not be persecuted for their biblical faith. This document gives considerable attention to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we'll look at Article 5. Um, the Spanish king was Roman Catholic, and de Bress was attempting to demonstrate that uh, Scripture is the highest authority, and that's, that's why he included Article 5, the authority of Scripture. We receive, this is after they name all the books of the canon in Article 4. We receive all these books, and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all, because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. So DeBress is attempting to defend <coughs> Christians of his day who are not necessarily Roman Catholic, but are being persecuted. Um, and God bless him for his efforts, handing down uh, a well-written confession that we can benefit from it today. The 39 Articles of Religion. Man, the 1500s are just stacked. It's almost like, it's almost like there was a lot happening in the world and they were responding to it. Um, the 39 Articles of Religion, written from 1552 onward and approved in 1563, these shaped the Anglican Church. They were finalized after the Council of Trent. These articles combine traditional and new language, and they require adherence to the Nicene and the Athanasian creeds. So we're building on what's been done in the past, on what we know to be true. The articles emphasize the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, along with spiritual confirmation within individual believers. The articles signal an official break from Rome by taking issue with several doctrines, purgatory, the sacrificial nature of the Mass, meaning that Christ is somehow re-sacrificed. Sometimes the word re-presented will be used, but uh, that there's, there, and there's an ongoing debate of what that really means, but uh, the 39 articles were saying that uh, the communion that we have is not a new sacrifice. The sacrifice is complete uh, when he said it is finished. They also disagreed with an emphasis on Latin and an excessive number of sacraments that are not called for in Scripture. Um, so this is... Some, some people say the Council of Trent is when the Roman Catholic Church stopped being Catholic uh, because the issue of uh, by grace through faith came under fire. Uh, justification was at the heart of this. And the 39 articles were written kind of... Uh, you know, like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share your post, but add my own, 
commentary underneath it. Um, so the 39 articles, let's look at article 20. Of the authority of the church. The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another, meaning to another part of scripture. We can't emphasize one part of scripture and violate other clear stuff. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, meaning against the holy writ, so besides the same, ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation? So the church has authority, but the church cannot overstep Scripture, which the authors of the 39 articles believed the uh, Roman Catholic Church had done at the Council of Trent. Um, the 39 articles are still in use, um, and they, the, sadly, the, the, the body, the modern version of the body that wrote them um, does not adhere to them faithfully as they once did, although there are new uh, movements within the Anglican Church, particularly one called ACNA, that still uses the 39 articles. Yep. Oh. Um, so, quick question. When you say, or when it says, um, taking issue with the sacrificial nature of Mass, so essentially were they just arguing against, like, transubstantiation? Uh, I, think, I think that, I think that, uh, that idea, yes, but more the idea that it was an ongoing sacrifice or a new, a new, like, a new sacrifice at the altar each time. Because if you don't have a new sacrifice, you don't necessarily need a priest to preside over the sacrifice. And you don't, you don't, the, the whole shape of the liturgy changes. Um, the Protestant answer was sacrificed once and for all, it is finished. And the, the sacrifice was acceptable and complete. So it doesn't need to be ongoing. So the Roman Catholics thought they did believe that every week, essentially, it was like a re-sacrifice? You know, it, the word represented is okay. used, meaning... And there, there's an ongoing debate there, and that could be like a whole other ABF class or, or a book or centuries of debate, maybe. Sure, right. um, Probably. Represented, the debate is, what does represented mean? Does it, mm-hmm. does it mean we're hearkening back? Mm-hmm. Because if it's simply representing what was once sacrificed, that sounds more like a memorial type of view. Right. Um, but the problem, even with the word represented, is that it, it has the, the nature of an ongoing mm-hmm. sacrifice something that seems incomplete. Um, try to hit a couple more of these. We haven't even gotten to Westminster yet. Uh, the Canons of Dort. So this resulted from the Synod of Dort in 1619. Um, synod, word, word that means assembly, big gathering. As the final contribution to the three forms of unity, the Canons of Dort contended against the five points of Arminius, Arminius and uh, sought unity among believers, especially in Reformed churches. By this time, they were realizing that there were some discrepancies even amongst Reformed churches, but they wanted to maintain unity on, doc- on the essential doctrines. This document emphasizes election, the value of Christ's death, human corruption, saving conversion, and God's preservation of his saints. What do those sound like? There are five of them. They do. So... 
Maybe one thing, one little trivia you could remember is that uh, Arminius and Calvin did not write the five points of Calvinism. It was Arminius' followers who had five major, like, hey, these are our five big things we want to advocate for. And in response to the followers of Arminius, Calvin's followers responded with the five points of Calvinism that we come to know as TULIP. Um, But there was much more to it than that. And we'll just uh, hit Article 9. Election, not based on foreseen faith. The same election took place, not on the basis of foreseen faith, of, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or of any other good quality and disposition, as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen. But rather, for the purpose of faith, the obedient, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, and so on, so it wasn't because of the person, it was for the purpose of the faith and for the purpose of obedience. Accordingly, election is the source of each of the benefits of salvation, faith, holiness, and the other saving gifts, and at last eternal life itself flow forth from election as its fruits and effects. As the apostle says, he chose us, not because we were, but so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So they've taken Ephesians 1, 4, and broken it into two statements and inserted another clause. Not because we were holy and blameless, but because we should be holy and blameless, and he would make us that way. All right, we're on Westminster. We finally made it. We could talk for a couple lessons on that. We could. So this Westminster was written in the midst of a civil war, uh, and the confession became dominant within Reformed Christianity. Because the war had religious division as one of its root causes, Parliament actually called for an assembly of theologians to recommend religious reforms, including church government and worship. That's how important uh, the church was in the public eye at the day that the government called theologians together to say, hey, you guys, this is causing such a huge dispute. You guys need to figure this out. Structured similarly to the 39 Articles, this document included specific authority for civil magistrates that were later modified in 1788. So that's the part I wanted to... It's, it's number 23. Uh, where are we? Of the civil magistrate. So I'll go uh, straight to part three of section 23. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or over the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. Any denominations of Christians above the rest, meaning the rest of the denominations of Christians. In such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. So this, this is the part uh, that's different than the original. The original called for the civil magistrate to be more involved, but in the 1780s, uh, the uh, American revolutionaries decided that was not a good idea. Um, and the church made some modifications, which still can happen today. The Westminster Confession of Faith can still be modified today. You don't see it a lot because it takes a lot of work. 
Um, it's, it's a difficult process, as it should be. So the London Baptist Confession continued to build on what Westminster did. Um, I'll give you the highlights here. Uh, it actually used Westminster as one of its kind of founding documents, although they promoted a more congregationalist government and had uh, Baptist doctrines when it came to um, baptism. I was going to highlight chapters 2 and 14. Feel free to look at those later. And then the Heidelberg Catechism, developed by 29-year-old professor Zacharias Ursinus to cultivate discipleship and faith. He organized, he organized his catechism into four parts. First, the gospel. Second, sin. Third, relief and mercy after you confess your sin. And fourth, grace that leads to thankfulness. This is a unique confession, a catechism, because the questions are grouped into 52 Lord's Days. So he designed it that each, each week a family could tackle five or six questions on the Lord's Day. Um, but seeing that we are past time, I want to thank you for your attention, and uh, I'll pray, and then we can go uh, worship together. And don't forget about the congregational meeting after church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We know the path has been difficult, but you have kept your promise that you would never leave us or forsake us, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. Uh, No matter how small or large, you have strengthened your church, and you have taught us well. Help us to listen well. Help us to hear your word, and not just be hearers, but doers as well. Uh, Please please bless us to uh, understand your word and to worship you rightly, as you have called for in Scripture. Help us to confess in faith that you have finished the work and to uh, repent and to boldly approach you. Bless Pastor Mock as he preaches from your word and uh, bless the deacons and elders as they uh, administer the different parts of the liturgy. And uh, let us have unity in Christ as we've studied today. Give us unity in you. Uh, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that you alone can do it. You can do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.